Hello, podcast world, and welcome to Deeply Spiritual, but Rather Uncertain. past three episodes, I've attempted to engage in the specific passages of Scripture that some Christians use to claim that every same-sex relationship is sin. Some people call these the clobber passages because they have been weaponized so many times. But I think that for most of you, in fact, probably everybody that listens to this podcast, you aren't looking to weaponize anything. You're honestly trying to make sense of the passages that you had always read in one particular way. And that's not easy work. Many of us have believed that if we reject or even question the evangelical way of interpreting Scripture, then we're rejecting God. And so there's a lot of baggage attached to these things, and it all has to get unpacked. But I hope that you're able to see these passages a little bit differently now or at least you're open to that possibility. If you're still not sure, I would encourage you to keep wrestling. There are plenty of books and resources out there that can help. In order to try to facilitate that a little bit, I've put together a list of a few helpful resources. You can find them on my website. Just go to skipcollins.com and then click on the LGBTQIA resources. These are all things that have been really helpful to me in my journey toward inclusion. And I would also love to hear from you. If there's a book or a website or a podcast that has helped you on this issue, then please send it to me. As a cisgender, white, heterosexual male, I have so much to learn. And there is so much I don't know. And I want to keep learning. And I hope you feel the same way. Andy Stanley has a phrase that I really appreciate. He says, what does love require of me? So what does love for my LGBTQ plus siblings require of me? It requires that I do the work to study and learn and grow. It requires that I be willing to change my language, to change my attitudes and to do everything I can to love them well. Okay, so back to what I was saying. In the past episodes, I hope that what you heard was that the Bible does not address the issue of Christians and LGBTQIA plus as we know it today. It speaks to abuse and power and sexual addiction and sexual exploitation, but not to the question at hand. It does not say that all homosexual activity is sinful. Some would like it to say that, but it just doesn't. So if the Bible doesn't speak to this subject, then how do we know what's right? Does the Bible have anything to say about that? And I'm so glad you asked, because this is the best part. In fact, for me, this is the issue. This is the thing that drives me to full inclusion and compels me to speak out on this issue. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, 
that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I really do believe that. And I don't think for a minute that I can improve on that sentence, and I'm not trying to do that. But I do want to borrow that language and talk about the fact that I believe that the arc of Scripture bends toward inclusion. Let me say that again. I believe that the arc of Scripture bends toward inclusion. Now, for the sake of clarity, I want to define what I mean by the arc of Scripture and what I mean by inclusion. So if you've listened to some of my other podcasts, you know that I don't believe that the Bible is meant to be taken literally. I don't believe it's inerrant or infallible. I believe it's the spiritual journey of the Jewish people and later the followers of Jesus, my spiritual ancestors. It's how they lived in the world and how they understood and responded to God. It's about their successes and their failures. It's not a handbook for life. It's not a bunch of rules that we follow, and it was never meant to be a book that we can pick a few sentences out of to make hard and fast rules or to declare doctrine. But it does help us to see where we come from, which is really beneficial as we look to the future and to where we are going. It's really beneficial to know how not to make the same mistakes that our spiritual ancestors made. And when we step back and take a 35,000-foot view of the last couple of thousand years, we can see just a bit of where God might be taking and leading us today. That's what I mean by the Ark of Scripture. So what do I mean by inclusion? When I use the word, I mean full inclusion, not partial inclusion. So let's specifically put this in the context of the church. I think we're pretty good at partial inclusion, which I've got to say is a big step forward in recent times, but I still think we have quite a ways to go. If we say an LGBTQ plus person is welcome in our church, but they can't sing on our worship team or lead a small group, or serve on the leadership team, that's not full inclusion, at least in my opinion, that's partial inclusion. In the same way that telling a woman they can't teach in your church is not full inclusion of women, it's just partial inclusion. The Oxford Dictionary gives this definition for inclusion. The practice or policy of providing equal access to opportunities and resources for people who might otherwise be excluded or marginalized. I'm going to read that again because that's really important. The practice or policy of providing equal access to opportunities and resources for people who might otherwise be excluded or marginalized. I love that. Equal access to opportunities. So that's what I mean when I speak of inclusion. And I believe that the arc of Scripture bends toward inclusion. For the most part, the Old Testament is about exclusion. 
or at least that's how the Jewish people saw it. They were God's chosen people. Everybody else was an outsider. The ability to worship God at the temple was quite exclusive. Now remember, we're talking about equal access to opportunities and resources. But women were excluded, people that had leprosy were excluded, and of course the Gentiles were excluded. You begin to see a little bit of change when the prophets spoke about inclusion of the marginalized, the materially poor, the widows, the orphans, the foreigners. It seemed to be a big move from the exclusivity of the Jewish belief. But then when Jesus enters the scene, he really turns everything on its head. Not only does he hang out with a riffraff of society, he picks two tax collectors to be among the 12 apostles. That was a big deal. Of the women who hung out with him, some of them were prostitutes. He cared for and touched people with leprosy. You see Jesus constantly breaking the norms of exclusion in the Jewish community. You probably remember the story of the woman at the well in Samaria. No decent, self-respecting Jew would go to Samaria. Samaritans were the outsiders, and outsiders should be avoided at all cost. So what does Jesus do? He goes to Samaria, and he invites this Samaritan woman, no less, and a woman with a shady reputation at that, he invites her to be part of this movement he's creating. He's including someone that would always have been excluded before. But then all of this culminates in Jesus coming to the temple just before the Passover. The temple is at the very heart of the exclusion in the Jewish world. There was a court of Gentiles, then there was a place that Jewish women were allowed, but the real place of worship could only be entered if you were a Jewish man, assuming that you had jumped through all the proper hoops. Jesus shows up at this place of exclusion, and he starts turning over tables and creating quite a disturbance. I don't think it was an act of rage. I think it was a carefully thought-out protest of the system of exclusion. This is the line he uses when he's doing all that. He says, My house shall be called the house of prayer for all people. All people with equal access and opportunities. But exclusion is so ingrained in the Jewish people that even his closest followers didn't get it. Then there's a story in Acts chapter 10. It comes pretty early in the story of the post-Jesus era. It starts with a Gentile man called Cornelius, who had a vision from God. And in this vision, he was told to send men to Jerusalem and find a guy called Peter, and tell Peter to come and see you. So in the meantime, Peter, who is a big player in this whole Jesus thing, is on a rooftop praying while he's waiting for lunch. And he has this vision. 
and this large sheet comes down from heaven. And when it opens up, it's full of animals that are all considered unclean by Jewish law. There's no ambiguity here. They are all out of bounds. And a voice says, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter's like, no way. Like, is this a test or a trick? I'm not falling for it. There's no way I'm breaking the rules and killing and eating these animals. And then the voice says these amazing words. What God has made clean, you should not call profane. This vision happens three times in total. What God has made clean, you should not call profane. And while Peter is still trying to figure out what's going on, there's a knock on the door, and the voice in the vision tells him that there's these men outside, go with them. They were Cornelius's servants. Suddenly, Peter got it. This new thing was no longer about exclusion. Everybody was included and everything was changing. Then there's one of my favorite stories of this new movement that's found in Acts chapter 8. It begins with Philip, who was one of the original apostles, going to Samaria to invite people into this new movement. Yes, the same place Jesus went when he included the woman at the well. But Philip seems to really get it. Everybody's invited. Everybody's included. So he goes to Samaria. And then later in the chapter, there's a story about Philip and the eunuch. I remember when I was little, I thought a eunuch was the same thing as a unicorn. They didn't really explain what a eunuch was in Sunday school, so I just tried to figure it out myself, and a unicorn made sense to me. A eunuch was a man who was castrated for any one of a number of reasons. Some people like to believe that this eunuch was gay or maybe even trans, and there's a real possibility that that may be true, but we really can't say for sure. What we do know is that he was a sexual outcast. He was excluded by the law of God based on his sexuality. The book of Deuteronomy includes long lists of people that were excluded from worship, including eunuchs. This is what it says in chapter 10. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose penis is cut off shall come into the assembly of the Lord. I don't know if unicorns were excluded, but eunuchs definitely were. But there's more because this particular eunuch was also an African. He was from Ethiopia. He was a black Gentile eunuch. He's just been in Jerusalem to worship. But because he was a Gentile eunuch, he was only allowed to go into the court of the Gentiles, not the true place of worship. But now he's on his way home and he's reading from the book of Isaiah. And Philip comes along and he asks him if he understands what he's reading. And the man says, no. And so Philip climbs up into the chariot and begins to tell him all about Jesus and 
how everything is new now. So here's my favorite part of the story. And I'll admit, it's a bit of speculation on my part, but I do think it's good speculation. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, tells us that the eunuch was reading from the prophet Isaiah. Although we don't really know where in Isaiah, but what if he was reading chapter 56? And I think that might be a good chance that he was, because let me read you what it says in this chapter. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath and do not profane it and hold fast to my covenant, I will bring to a holy mountain and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called the house of prayer for all peoples. And yes, this is exactly the verse that Jesus quoted when he's overturning the tables in the temple. So as they're having this conversation, very possibly about Isaiah 56, the eunuch sees some water and asks if there's any reason that he can't be baptized. Now understand that baptism was a picture of full inclusion. And what the eunuch is asking is, does my sexuality exclude me? Does the fact that I'm a black Gentile eunuch exclude me? Because what you are explaining to me from Isaiah 56, it doesn't seem like it. And Philip doesn't think twice. He doesn't go back to the leaders of the church to ask permission, although if he had, he would very likely have heard them say no because the eunuch had to get circumcised first. Oh, wait a minute. This is complicated, right? But, but it doesn't matter because Philip got it. He understood what Jesus was doing with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the woman at the well and the whole temple thing. So Philip and the eunuch get out of the chariot. Philip dunks him just like that, fully included. Like I said, the whole church didn't quite see it the same way Philip did. They debated for years what inclusion looked like. Many were in favor of partial inclusion, but not full inclusion. And we still struggle. But we've made progress beyond the New Testament church. We've made progress in the inclusion of women, the inclusion of those that don't look like us, the inclusion of the materially poor. And I would suggest we've even made some progress on the inclusion of the LGBTQ plus community. But we're not done yet. We still have a long way to go when it comes to full inclusion in the church. We're much more like Peter 
than we are like Philip. We are still calling profane that which God has called clean. I believe that the arc of Scripture bends toward full inclusion of the LGBTQ plus community in our churches. LGBTQ plus people should be on our elder boards, serving on our worship teams, and leading our Bible studies. They should have equal access to opportunities and resources that the rest of us have. They should not be excluded on their basis of their sexual orientation. A number of years ago, a Christian leader that I highly admired made a statement that I still hold on to today, although I've tweaked it just a bit over the years. He said that if I'm in error, I want to err on the side of grace. I've tried hard to live by that, but now I would say it just a little bit differently. I would say that if I'm going to err, I want to err on the side of inclusion. Someday if I stand before God and God says you were too inclusive, you weren't judgmental enough, well then so be it. But somehow I can't imagine that being the case. I'm sure I can be too judgmental and too dogmatic, but can I be too inclusive, too loving, too kind, too graceful? I don't think so. Peter needed the vision repeated three times before he actually got it. And then he still struggled to be fully inclusive of the Gentiles. And we'll talk about that more next time. Philip got it from the beginning. Philip was the first to go to the Samaritans. Philip didn't hesitate to baptize and include a black Gentile eunuch. I want to be like Philip. In the next episode, we're going to talk about the response of the church when it comes to our LGBTQ plus siblings. How do we move forward on such a complicated issue in such polarized times? I hope you'll join me for that. In the meantime, check out the resources on my website, skipcollins.com. And if you're able to support this work financially, you can do so at Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Skip Collins. It's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Skip Collins. Also, if you want to connect with me, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or you can email me at skipinusa at gmail.com. The links are all in the show notes below. We'll see you next time. Shalom. Shalom.